Welcome to a most auspicious episode of Mania. Here we are in a city that has bred an untold number of gruesome and grotesque stories. Let me invite you to London, a carnival of gallows. London's history echoes of archetypes we are all too familiar with. You'll find examples of its gonoffs, or gentlemen thieves, in stories like Scott Lynch's The Gentleman Bastard series. These are the individuals who might be called con artists today, though that term doesn't quite do them justice. Imagine a lowly footpad thieving their way high enough in society to afford the clothes and etiquette which allows them to blend in with aristocracy. And, who could forget, to all our morbid delight, perhaps the original slasher, whose rampage inspired a crimson fad, Jack the Ripper. But let's also not forget the other side of this coin. The first police station was created in London, an invention of necessity for its rampant crime. Scotland Yard and the first officers within would inspire the likes of Sherlock Holmes and other detective stories. There is something charming about the rough edges of this city's history, the foggy streets brimming with intrigue, outlaws and expert thieves ranging from lone child beggars to highly sophisticated pickpocket crews. It's the rudimentary, less fine-tuned society that we know today, struggling to understand the extent of its own corruption within evolving morals and standards. From within this breeding ground of the grotesque, rising from the blood-soaked footprints pursued by detectives, who's to say just how many stories exactly this city inspired? Undoubtedly, they are as numerous as the cobblestones and bricks formed and torn apart over the centuries to craft this awe-inspiring behemoth of modernity. Whether it's the stories of back-alley serial killers, poorly disposed bodies, or the highwaymen made into heroes, London's magnificently macabre history continues to beat the hearts of all those drawn to it. From out its endlessly turning cogs and coughing smokestacks arose innumerable counts of thievery, murder, crime, madness, and mania. On the 17th of May, 1777, Joseph Harris awakens in his cell in Newgate Gall with a throbbing wrist. There is a sharp pain from the superficial cuts made from a loose stone, the act of suicide stopped by his keeper. The young highwayman rises from a sleepless night, trying not to imagine his final destination that day. Tyburn, also known as God's Tribunal in the 18th century. In fact, it was in this century alone that 6,000 would be drawn, hanged, disemboweled, burnt, and executed here. This served as the principal site for execution. No matter how much soil is layered over the mulch, no matter how many cobblestones or concrete is laid, nothing will be able to cover up the layers of deceased haunting this ground. This podcast is about villains, is it not? So why are we waking up alongside a 15-year-old boy, why are we watching him squint at the dawn light through eyes rubbed raw from sobbing? A boy whose crime was so heinous in the eyes of the court that he was sentenced to the noose. You must be imagining that the boy did something truly terrible. After all, we're about to watch him dance the, quote, Tyburn jig. He deserved it, didn't he? In truth, young Mr. Harris was tried because he was caught in the pursuit of a highway robbery. Nobody was killed, nobody was shot, not even physically harmed. This was a common offense at this point in history. 
So common, in fact, that nobles traveling along the roads to and from London often carried purses filled with enough coins specifically to placate robbers. This was how the poor, the hopeless, the lifeless, took matters into their own hands. That's not to belittle the crime, but we must wonder. Fifteen years old, born into destitution, birthed screaming into a callous world, ushered into a community of thieves, perhaps the only community that ever cared, loved, or sought after his well-being. Yet here we are. Yes, Joseph is a villain, a villain in the eyes of the justice system, a rat, a soul whose life and body is so meaningless that he is more valuable as an example of punishment than a story of redemption. And to me, if only for the unimaginable fear and suffering he endured in the nights before his death, he's something of a hero. All of you that in the condemned hole do lie, prepare you for tomorrow you shall die. And when St. Sepulchre's bell tomorrow tolls, the Lord above have mercy on your souls. This is perhaps the last poem Joseph ever hears. Prisoners in Newgate would hear it often the night before their hanging. The bellman's feet would crunch as he patrolled the gull, his voice creeping through the barred windows like the breath of a phantom. But little peace or rest Joseph has on his final night is obliterated when he awakens at seven o'clock that morning. What he hears are the crashing bells of St. Sepulchre, a billowing symphony reserved for hanging days. The whole city would be stirred to participate in this festival of death, and all the cells holding those condemned souls would return with a furious outcry, mingled with despairing screams. All this, too, over those weeping in silent bitterness. Joseph's fate has long since been sealed since the date of his crime on April 21st. On the day of his hanging, there is perhaps the greatest concourse of people ever drawn together by a like spectacle. And that isn't apocryphal. It is taken out of the newspapers which reflected on this day. A three-mile trek from Newgate to Tyburn lay between Joseph and his dance with death. As Joseph is carted along the bumpy path, the city forms a procession following the journey. It snakes through Holborn, St. Giles, and the Tyburn Road, now called Oxford Street, and to Tyburn itself what is now the Marble Arch. Joseph can see in his vision the literal thousands of onlookers. Their expressions cram every balcony and window, every side street, every doorway, shop corner, and walkway. Their faces betray every emotion. Contempt, judgment, apathy, glee, then sympathy, rage, and frustration, all the emotions Joseph himself has agonized over from the time of his sentencing to now, the emotions he is too weary to express, the ones he is too ashamed to feel. On execution days like today, the road to Tyburn would be packed with guests and onlookers of up to 100,000 strong. For some criminals, there would be hatred in the crowds, but today, as London endures a 15-year-old being carted to the black door, there is sympathy, even compassion. The young highwayman is not escorted out of his cart when they arrive at Tyburn. No. In fact, for this entire journey, the noose from which he will hang has been wrapped loosely around his body. Now, Edward Dennis, the hangman, 
simply takes the free end of the rope from each prisoner and wraps it around the beam above. He ties the rope to the beam, leaving little to no slack. The ordinary, who has accompanied the prisoners through this journey, prays with them a final time. A nightcap is placed over Joseph's face. The last thing he sees, perhaps, the thousands of people already mourning his soul before it's even departed. Perhaps he thinks somebody will cry out and save him in the end. Perhaps he's already accepted it. Perhaps he's convinced himself that his prayers and his reconciliation in the cell was enough. But then he hears the crack of a whip. A whip that sends the horses carrying the carts they are standing on, galloping away. And the knot, a simple slip knot, not the carefully drawn coil you might imagine, wraps tight. Thick, rough fingers squeezing on his throat. There is but a handful of inches from the cart's edge to the ground. Thus his spine remains intact. And the boy is but fifteen years old, so he has little weight, and is just writhing. This agony goes on for several minutes. Inevitably, the twitching in Joseph's feet subside. The Tyburn jig, the dance with death, is over. This episode, in it of itself, feels like a crime, because there are so many fragments of London's history to choose from. When I am at the comfort of my desk, the luxury of turning a blind eye to everything else in human history, besides a few measly moments, feels painless. Necessary, of course. I can capture the Headless Horseman's home in Ireland without delving into the potato famine which devoured thousands of souls. But here, filming for the first time in the city, whose nature inspired so many pieces of my fiction, and even the very first episode of this show, it truly is painful to not spread myself as thin as possible to capture as much of London's essence as I can. But of what little of it I did manage to bottle up for you, I do dearly hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to support Mania, please go to patreon.com forward slash harlequingrim. There you'll find subscriber-only exclusives. There'll even be footage from this trip and bloopers and things for you to watch, and you can pay as little as $1 a month to get access to that. Otherwise, you can rate and review it wherever you happen to listen to it, or you can share it with your friends and families. Word of mouth for death cults is really... <coughs> word of mouth for podcasts is really... Uh, magic. So, yes, that is one of the more effective ways. Thank you again for joining me from the bottom of my haunted heart, and I do sincerely hope you'll join me next time.